It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right the digital kill the radio star podcast as always i am your host david and um on the line from memphis tennessee i have my buddy chris how are you chris i'm doing well man how are you i'm good listen uh you know normally we sit here and, and bs about music and what's going on in our life or whatever but uh we're gonna skip all that this week because uh we have a really big guest and uh, we're really excited to speak with uh from candlebox kevin martin hey fellas how you doing man oh man we're good we're good looks like you're enjoying a nice libation a little, a uh, little whiskey, you know, to, to uh, cleanse the old palate. There, are you a bourbon? Beers. I like bourbon. I like whiskey. Uh, I love scotch. Good scotch. Only single malts. I'm not a, uh, not a blended scotch guy myself personally. But yeah, bourbon and whiskey uh, has been kind of my go-to. Um, shit, going on about ten years now, 10, 15 years. I used to drink a lot of vodka, but um, just didn't give me the same kind of feeling as a, as a nice bourbon does. I hear you. What's your, uh, what's your favorite top shelf bourbon? Oh man, there's several. Um, I mean, if I want something that's just a sipper all day long, it's Basil Hayden uh, mm-hmm. or Woodford Reserve. Uh, Mitchell's is great. Uh, I've been drinking this um, new one that I'm really, really liking. Actually, what I'm sipping on now is called Noah's Mill. Yeah, uh, it's a uh, kind of you know you heard of it. It's mm-hmm. a it's a nice small batch. Um, I'm actually starting. Adam and I, my bass player, and I are starting a bourbon. Uh, we're supposed to actually start it this year. We we're going to launch it actually last year, 2020, but course everything slowed that down um which is uh you know a bummer but i'm excited to get that thing out at some point and hopefully people um people like it as much as i do is your name gonna be on it am i gonna be on it yeah not your name is your, your name or candle box anything is, is there gonna be an oh, association? No, no, I, I don't go that route i don't i don't want to scare people off <laughs> well, well you know that's kind of a trend these days man everybody's making their own beer their own you know megadeth yeah. wine <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and Megadeth I, wine tastes like Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm one of those bourbon nerds. And like you start going down that rabbit hole and next thing you know, you've got, you know, 15, 20 bottles on your shelf. And I'm, yeah, ain't nothing wrong with that. Well, or 12 is my go to if I can get my 
my paws on it, but that's not it's an easy beautiful. one to find. <laughs> and it's expensive. I mean, it's, I think Weller's overpriced for what it is. I, I, I do like that a lot. I, I, I've, that's one that I won't put ice in. I, I, I like a nice big block of ice in my, in my mitchers and whatnot, but Weller, I, I will sit that straight. That's a beautiful bourbon whiskey. And, but I just think it's a little bit overpriced. Um, you know, what, what they're, what they're selling. It's, it's 12 years old. You can get the same 12 year old for, you know, well, in Mississippi, you can get a 12 year old for cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and so it begins. <laughs> <laughs> well, is this, are you recording? Hello. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> oh man. Well, listen, uh, Kevin, it's been kind of a, a crazy, uh, you know, 12 or 13 months for everybody. And, um, you guys have a new album coming out September 21st, uh, Wolves. But if I'm reading this correctly, it was really supposed to come out last year, right? Yeah, actually, it was supposed to come out September 21st of last year. It's coming out September 17th. Oh, this I'm year. sorry. So that's all right. Um, yeah, it, it, we um, we recorded it in 2019 at uh, Henson Studios, uh, which is the old A&M here in Los Angeles. And uh, then I flew to Texas in January. I spent about four months working on the melodies and the lyrics, just, I wanted to make sure, because it's a very different record for us. It's, um, I don't know, I've, I've used the term, it's bipolar, because it, it doesn't really have an identity, which I'm kind of excited about, because I don't know if you've heard the first single we released, which is called Let Me Down Easy. Mm-hmm. It's and then the second single, yeah, and the second single we released called My Weakness, which is kind of like a Brian Adams pop song. That's kind of how the record is. It's very, very um, non-directional and uh it's not cohesive so i took my time writing the lyrics and 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 the melodies for this record because i wanted to make sure that if we're gonna go that far away from what people are used to i want to make sure that the songs in some way shape or form keep you interested i i you know i'm a huge kings leon fan and uh and i think this new record of theirs is absolutely terrible and that bums me out to say because they spent a year working on it. And I would think that, you know, if you spend that much time working on something, it would be better than it is. Now that's not to say that, you know, there is an appreciation for what they've done. And again, you know, I love the Kings of Leon, so I'll buy anything they do and I'll buy any record they make. But um, I think if, if you fight too much with something um, that's when you get a, a real, artistic creative um product and i think if you're very comfortable with something um it's not what it should be and i think that as musicians it's our job to struggle at those moments when we could maybe rest on our laurels um or or lean back on you know past successes or something so with this record i uh I really, really dug and spent my time on, on working on these lyrics and these melodies. I wanted to make sure that it was a record that um, allowed the band to kind of move forward. Uh, and at the same time, um, challenged and, and um, pushed that envelope that, that we've been known to push over the past three records. Um, and uh, so it's a, I finished the, the vocals January of 2020 in Houston, Texas, and went out and played eight shows in February and then the world shut down. So um, to answer your question, long story short, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's coming out finally, but it's been done. You know, it's been, we've been sitting on this for well over a year now. Have you, have you gone back in and tinkered with it since? No. You know, the, okay. No, uh, I, I, there are a couple songs that I thought maybe over this break 
we would re um, address that didn't make the record. And I called the guys and I said, you know, how are you feeling about the album? How are, you know, everybody has it. Uh, everybody's, you know, played a part on this record and, and has, you know, very, very uh, good stronghold on their parts and positions on these songs. And everybody was like, no, man, I wouldn't change the thing. And, and, and the songs that didn't make the record didn't make the record for a reason. They were, they were a bit too uh, candle box, if you will, um, too much acoustic and too derivative of, of songs that, you know, maybe we wrote back in 1994 and 95 and 96. We know, I, unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't heard the first single that you named. I, I, I'm on Apple Music and it's not on there. Just My Weakness is on there. And oh no, uh, it's called it's called Let Me Down Easy. It's, it should be on there under uh, under Catabox. That's interesting. Okay, maybe it's the singles in. So so yeah, I didn't hear that. I just heard my weakness and that one. And that was, you've kind of already answered my question a bit because I was going to ask about the direction of this album because when I hear my weakness, first of all, man, it's an amazing song and I, I've, I've listened oh, thank to it you. so many times, um, thank you. several times a day. You're welcome. And and to me, when I hear that, and I'm, I know you're talking about the first one being a more of a heavy track, I heard this and I thought, okay, this is kind of a more mature sound, but I like it, you know, in the same way that, you know, one of my favorite bands, probably my favorite band is Social Distortion. They matured, yeah. but they matured in a good way. They've done it, you know, it's, it's, man, it's a, it's a aged wine, man. They, they've gotten, to me, it's just as good as the early stuff they did. So there's nothing wrong with maturing to that sound. Because I was wondering, is this album going to be more of building off of Disappearing in Airports, which, in my opinion, that's probably my second favorite album that you've done. Um, oh, thank you. I Mine as well. Album. Thank yeah. you. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, you kind of answered my, my question on it already, but I was just going to make the point but that I that first single, at least what I heard, my weakness was definitely a little bit more of a mature sound, <laughs> but in a very, very positive way. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, I... I tend to try and stay away from, you know, the comment section of <laughs> your blabbermouth or, you know, Facebook or any of that kind of bullshit, because I don't, I don't make music for, you know, anybody that, that, that that's not a Candlebox fan. And, and I certainly only make it for myself. I make the, the records when I feel it's, it's time for Candlebox to make a record and, you know, being delirious and, and singer songwriter for this band from, you know, 1990 till today, uh, you know, going on actually 30 years come this October is how long Candlebox will have been around. Um, you know, I, I've never, I've never, you know, thought about, um, you know, writing a song for the masses. I've only ever produced what I wanted to produce. And, and I've been fortunate enough to have a, you know, a debut album that has given me this 30 year career. Um, but far behind and you and change and cover me and all those songs that, you know, that, that was who I was at that moment of my life. And I've always felt that when it's time for me to make a record, I'll make a record. When it's time for me to sing about something, I'll sing about it. Um, my weakness is an interesting song because I, I did do the rabbit hole thing with the comments. And the funny thing is, is that is the fans that haven't been with Candlebox the longest um, are the ones who don't like the song. And they're the ones saying, oh, it doesn't sound like Candlebox, you know, it's not. And then you go through their history and they've only been a fan, you know, since maybe, you know, uh, Into the Sun. They kind of revisit us. They may have had the first record, but they don't have Lucy. They don't have Hip Happy Pills. And then they revisited the band. The fans that have been with us a long time love the fact that we are pushing the envelope with the song like this. And I got this song from my buddy Don, who sings in a band called Whole Damn Mess. 
he, he toured with me back in 2011 and we became instant friends and uh, his name's Don Miggs and, and he's, and he's a brilliant singer songwriter. And, and I said to him, and I've actually written some songs with him for other artists. And I said, listen, I, I want something that feels like Brian Adams summer of 69. I, I can't write that. I don't know how to write that kind of song. I said, you're really good at writing these kinds of tracks. Um, would you write me something? And he sent me this song and I fell in love with it. And so it's not really what I've, it's the first song I've never written like anything. Else. So it was actually written for me by a friend about my relationship with my wife, which he's grown to know over the past uh, 10 years. He's become very, very good friends with her. And he's actually her business partner in a, in a business that she has. So he's watched our relationship over the past 10 years. And he's like, I've got a song for you. So he wrote that about my relationship, which I was fascinated by. And I loved singing it so much um, that it's, I think it's why the song does what it does and feels the way it feels is because it, it's about me, but I didn't write it, which is strange because it's the first time I've ever done that. Well, speaking of like evolving musically, one of the things that frustrates me and Chris, I mean, we're just lifelong music fans is when people are fans of a band, but they don't allow the band to evolve musically. Like you just said, far behind was almost 30 years. Ago. That's where you were at that point in your life. You know, that's far not, behind is far behind is 30 years old 30 years come old. this October. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I have found, you know, we're Chuck, Chris and our children of the nineties that a lot of people want to just look at bands that were popular in the nineties as like a nostalgia act. And yep. that's very frustrating. Like the last Pearl Jam record was amazing. It's one of their best ones they've done. Um, Alice in Chains is still putting out good music, you know? Um, yeah. do you, does that frustrate you? Do, do people try to lump you into that and just basically like after 99, you don't exist, you know, as far as like putting out new music? Well, I think that's any, I think that's, you know, any successful band, save for the Chili Peppers, you know, I mean, John Prashante's changed, you know, changed their lives back in whatever it was, 1989. And he saved their career three times. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're not the Chili Peppers, um, you know, your, your solid fan base will always buy your record. Um, and that's why, you know, Pearl Jam will still sell. And by the way, they don't sell millions of records. anymore. Right. Uh, they'll, they'll still sell a half a million or maybe a million uh, worldwide. But, you know, Pearl Jam's a, you know, they're the Grateful Dead of the 90s. So or of the 2000s now. But um you know, you, you have, when you're a rock and roll band, you're, it, there's always one record that is the defining moment of your career, um, especially bands from the 90s. And I think with Alice in Chains, it's always going to be Dirt. Um, with Pearl Jam, it's always going to be 10, even though people love Versus and they, and they love Vitology. Um, I'm a yield Soundgarden. Guy. Yeah, which, you know, is interesting because that's a really different record for them. Um, Soundgarden, it's always going to be, you know, Super Unknown. Um, uh, Nirvana is always gonna be never mind, even though you in utero is better, and Bleach is the be best record they ever made. Um, but with those Seattle bands, you know, even Queensrÿche, you know, it's uh, people will go see Queensrÿche with the new singer, with you know, however many original members, but they kind of really want to see Jeff Tate do his thing, you know, and it's always kind of Operation Mind Crime, it's yeah. not all the other stuff they produced, and they've made some amazing albums, so yeah. Um, does it frustrate me? Of course it does. Um, do I care? Not really, because I'm still here and, and thank God I still have a career. Um, I, I wish that um, 
I wish that the world were as open as it says it is when it comes to embracing creativity. Um, but I think in this world we live in where um, people just want instant gratification. And, and it's not only, you know, over the past few years with cell phones and stuff, it's been that way, you know, really since the nineties where I want it, I want it now and I don't give a shit. And um, Europe is an interesting case study in South America where they don't miss your new records. They will always buy your new album. They will always support what you move into. The United States is, ah, it's a 7-Eleven. I'm going to, you know, sour patch kids one week and next week it's going to be, you know, worms or something. And, I, you know, that's, that's kind of how we're raised because we can get whatever we want when we want it right now. Well, I was talking with uh, Mark Ford from the Black Crows. Uh, Mark, about, great guy. Yeah, he's a super nice guy. About how... His, his, well, his theory on Europe is, look, they have stuff that's been around since the 14 and 1500s. A lot of their landscape doesn't change. And so they're, they're not, they used appreciate to, it. They're not used to having the new thing, you know, they're they're And once they're your fan, they're your fan, um, yeah. you know, for life. And so, yeah, that's what he was telling me. He's like, I've just always thought, you know, they're, they're not real good with change, you know, because no. everything kind of stays the same. So I just, yeah. And it's, it's, to me, it's frustrating as a music person. You watch these concerts in Europe and South America and like, you know, Iron Maiden's playing like 150,000 people and people are humming the guitar solos. Man, look at, look at the documentaries under those videos. Those yeah. are movies of yeah. Maiden, man. They're, they're camping out trying to get in storm. And look at, look at somebody like Springsteen and you're talking about Europe. Yeah. I mean, my God, they, he's still loved here, but it's not like over there. No, you, we, the first time we went to uh, Chile, South America, which was, uh, you know, on, honestly, I think 10 years ago, 2010, 2012, we're there for Into the Sun. I can't remember. Um, it was the first time we visited there and we showed up the airport and there were people screaming and crying and throwing shit at us. I mean, we got mobbed. Well, that, had, that hadn't happened to us. It hadn't even happened to us when we were in our prime playing Letterman 1994. We did Far Behind. There were 30 people outside asking us to sign shit we went to South America, man, and we were the fucking Beatles. It's crazy how they, the passion that, that Europeans and South Americans and Af Africanas, Australians have for music that we've lost sight of here in the United States. Uh, now, not all of us, of course, because, you know, you mentioned your love for Social D and, and I'm the same way with, you know, Kings of Leon and Black Crows. And, uh, you know, it, I will always, always buy those records of my favorite bands, but we are a dying breed you know, of music lover. And, and that's the sad thing because, you know, we, we want it when we want it and we want it now. And that's kind of what we've become. Yeah, definitely. Hey, um, so you're, you know, we didn't know, of course, that you, this record you finished before this pandemic hit, but one thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast, David and I have is, and we really talked about this in the early months is okay. Are we going to suddenly see a surge of new music. Um, and I guess I kind of, now I'm kind of thinking about a couple of questions that just popped in my head as I'm talking about this. I got two things. One, did it, did you backlog on music? Did you start stacking up because you couldn't tour? And then number two, how difficult is it going to be to tour to get to a venue when everybody's rushing, trying to get booked? Yeah. The funny thing is, is my agent started booking this year, last summer. Um, you know, uh, no, I did not. I did not backlog a bunch of music. I, I literally just took a break. I gained 10 pounds. 
but you know, I mean, I just said, I, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy this time being a father and a, and a husband and, and being at home. And, um, my, I have guitars that are sitting in my living room that haven't been touched in, you know, six, seven months. And, um, if I didn't have a housekeeper coming here to clean the house, you know, they'd be covered in dirt. Um, I just, I felt like maybe it was time to just sit back and take this all in and, and fingers crossed I stayed healthy. And, and, um, I lost a couple of friends last year, um, you know, to COVID and, um, that, that was really difficult because, you know, my, I lost my best friend, Michael, um, it was it just actually turned 50 years old. So that was heartbreaking. Um, but I, I just kind of, I wanted to take time to reevaluate my life and who I was and, and, and my position in it, you know, um, touring, I think you're going to see unbelievable performances. I think you're going to see musicians that realize just how fucking important um, our fans are to us and how much playing live means to us. Um, I played a couple of acoustic shows over the past couple of months just for charity events. And um, it was, uh, it was like I hadn't, I hadn't played music in, you know, 20 years and, and my fans are so happy to see me and, and but they were so respectful and quiet because they were acoustic shows, but you could tell they just wanted to fucking tear the roof down. And um, I think that's really what we're all going to experience is those shows that we go to are going to be mind blowingly good. And the bands are going to like, I'm, I have my first date is I think August 6th in um, uh, Iowa at, at an outdoor festival. And, you know, we're rehearsing for seven days straight as a band prior to that in Nashville to prepare for what is supposed to be a 12 week tour. Um, basically to make up for all the dates that we lost last year. And I'm really, really looking forward to being in that rehearsal room with these guys that I love so much playing music with and, and making sure that every single song is absolutely perfect. And I haven't had that um, desire to perfect my craft like that in, you know, 30 years, honestly. Um, you know, of course, when you go out and you play shows, you, you rehearse for two or three days. Yeah, we got this. We'll go out and play them. And somebody will fuck up. You know, it's not the same this time. This time it's like, it, it has to be right. That those, those songs have to be perfect because they haven't been played in two years, you know, or whatever. Well, Chris and I are both very lucky that uh, we both work in healthcare and we both got vaccinated back in December. And so for about the past two months, I've just been like, you know, I'm good to go and ready to go. And I've got my first concert in a couple of weeks. And I was telling uh, my buddy, I was like, I think when the guitar tech comes out and hits the A chord, uh, when they're, I, I, I may cry. I just, I mean, I just made yeah. it. That's the greatest A chord of all. Eddie Van Halen couldn't play it. There, so, you know? <laughs> I feel you, man. I feel you. Yeah. Um, I've been a little bit, see, I've been a little bit more fortunate because we have in Memphis, we have this place that, uh, are you familiar with Del Watson? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, Del, Del Watson has a place in Memphis now. He uh, It's an old I legendary, did not know that. Old legendary like honky-tonk uh, yeah. called Hernando's Hideaway. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis used to call it his, his office. Uh, it was closed for years. He, he opened it, and he plays there all the time. And every, just about every Sunday, he, plays, he does a game that's called Chicken Shit Bingo. And he and his band will play for like three hours. And I've been fortunate, man. I've been going to see him play since late last summer. 
And so I've at least had something where somebody like David's sitting around just like, all right, when's it going to happen? Yeah. 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 You're lucky, man. That's very cool. I'm happy for you because that's amazing. Dell's brilliant. I mean, I did not know he's doing that. A very good friend of mine, Pat Mitchell, lives there in, in Memphis. And um, she, I met her years ago, uh, actually, on the first Candlebox tour. She actually is uh, is a, a huge uh, um, supporter of, of the um, Black Soul Rhythm and Blues community there in Memphis and kind of trying to make sure that these songwriters are getting paid. Uh, you know, she was... Uh, a, a, a super, super conductor for a lot of, of what's happened with the Memphis music scene. And I know that she's worked with Dell on some stuff. So I, I'll have to call her up and ask her if she's, um, you know, skipped on quarantine and gone seen some of those Sunday shows. Cause I'm gonna have to give her a little bit of shit about it. Yeah. But, and, uh, he plays, and he plays a lot of other shows too, not just Sundays, but those are, I mean, that's brilliant. he plays a lot, he plays right. a lot, but yeah, he's checked. If she hasn't gone, she needs to check him out. And he, he'll bring on, um, well, Reverend Horton Heath played with him. Jim yeah. Heath, he came out and yeah, played I love a Jim. special show with him. Um, Jerry doesn't Phillips. Jim live in Nashville? I don't know. He didn't say. But but um, and then Jerry Phillips, the son of Sam Phillips, he gets up there and yep. plays with him sometimes. Yep. And just the storytelling alone is is worth it. Can you imagine the son of Sam Phillips? I know. <laughs> By the way, great great book, the Sam Phillips book. But anyway, yeah. I think David, I think David's wanting to ask a question. I'll so, all son of Sam Phillips, that'd be like a great <laughs> punk band. You know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Kevin, you know, like you said, you've, you've been at this a while. And one of the things when I uh, talk to people that have had a long career, I like to ask them the way you promote things now has completely changed. Um, you know, in the past, you could go do a you know, five minute radio interview. And what I've been told by a lot of people, you have like 10 or 15 of them lined up. And you just go and people asking you the same questions. And um, but now podcasting is kind of the thing. And granted, a lot of podcasts don't have the reach that necessarily a radio station would, but it's like shooting fish in a barrel because everybody's listening to a music podcast like ours is a music fan. And yeah. so I, it, do you enjoy that better? Do you feel like it's better discussion and you're just not getting asked the same three questions over and over again? Yeah, I do. What I, what I prefer about a podcast is it, it it's a casual conversation over, you know, a glass of bourbon or, or whatever it is, or tequila, maybe if you're drinking tequila, um, interviews, you know, shit, I've been doing them since 19, you know, 91, 92. And there's, there's nothing interesting about it because you're not, there's no real depth to it. Like I, you know, even when I just did an interview for a magazine in Italy and I, you know, I I was kind of fascinated. This person was interested in, in writing about the band. And then I got the question is like, Oh God, these are Wikipedia questions. It's like, why if you're gonna like i'm starting a podcast right it's and it this is what it's called it's called rock and roll look it up it's a saying that i came up with back in 2010 and the 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 game plan is this it's nine the people that i interview it's gonna be nine of their favorite songs so it's the good the bad and the in the uh dastardly uh, bastardly ugly so it's gonna be nine of their favorite songs two bad songs and one song that's absolutely horrible the research that i'm doing the people that I'm interviewing is really, really deep. Like I'm not, I'm not going to ask them their band names. I'm not going to ask that shit. It's tell me about the, you know, this post you made about your child or, or your cousin or something that, you know, happened. That's what's fascinating when you learn about. So that's why we read books, right? That's why we read biographies. We want to know what it was about Neil Pert that made him get on a motorcycle and ride around the fucking world. I toured with Rush in 94. 
he wasn't that person in 94. He was, he's, I played golf with him. I played 18 rounds of uh, 18 holes of golf with him. And, and I learned a lot about him uh, over the three months we toured with him, but I still read his book because I thought I knew him. And even in the book, his daughter was killed in a car accident because he bought her the car and she rolled it. And then his wife died of cancer like six months later. Devastating fucking shit. That's why we read books. So why do an interview that the questions have already been answered? What I like about podcasts, like what we're talking about, is we're having a conversation. And people are going to hear the honesty and the sincerity of your questions, your answers, my questions, my answers. The conversation that we're having, it makes it feel like you're in the same room together. And even though we're worlds apart right now, um, we're very comfortable with one another. And, and, and it's, I, you know, you could ask me a question that a lot of people would feel uncomfortable about, and I would probably answer it. You know, it's because I can look at your face and I can see that there's, there's desire inside your mind to learn something. And, you know, interviews are, uh, fuck, we've all read the same fucking interviews. How many times are you going to interview, you know, Eddie Vedder or, or Lane Staley or Chris Cornell or any of these guys about, you know, the same shit? How'd you write Black Hole Sun? I mean, nobody really gives a fuck because it's a great song. You know, right. what they want to know is who is the person that wrote that song? You know? Yeah. As a quick sidebar on something like that, are you... Are you one of these artists that like when you write a song, it, it means something to you. And once it hits the airwaves, it's okay for other people to have their own interpretation of it. I did not talk about far behind until 2013. Nobody knew that song was about Andy Wood, except me. Um, Andy was a singer from metal level mm -hmm. and he was, and he was a, uh, a great inspiration to me. And, and I, and I would like to call him a close friend. Um, even though he wasn't, I, I, he was an acquaintance that I would hang out with at the shoe store. I was working at in Seattle for, you know, weeks on end that he would pop in on a Saturday or a Monday or a Tuesday, whenever he happened to be down in Pike place market and come in and hang out. Um, but he was a magical human being that inspired me to do what it is that I do. Um, interview in Seattle on KSW, um, we had, I think we just released the, um, love stories and other musings record. And, um, I told the story and Kevin, his brother, uh, who sang in a, a competing band, uh, in Seattle at the same time as Candlebox, hated us. Like it was just like fucking hated us. And he actually reached out to me via KSW and said, man, I never knew that song was about my brother. And, uh, and he's like, I, uh, I'm ashamed to say that I've been talking shit about you for 20 plus years now. Um, but I was like, man, I understand it. It's, you were a far better musician and probably far more talented and probably deserved it more. But you know, the light shines brightly on certain people at certain times. And Seattle was, you know, we all know the story about you know how many fucking bands came out of it, but the, the spotlights that were on that fucking city, which is, you know, I wrote a song about, um, on, on uh, disappearing airports, the term spotlights. It's about Detroit, but it really is about the musicians that inspired me. Um, that, you know, growing up in that city where every fucking guy that was in a band looked like he was in a fucking band and deserved to be a band and deserved to be a rock star. Um, it was, it was, 
you know, mind bending for me. But, you know, when I write these songs and I put them out there, uh, it's for you to interpret. Um, and, and, and I'm okay with that. But there are songs that I've written where I say, hey, this is what it's about. Like I just mentioned, you know, my weakness. Don wrote that for me. I did not write that song. Right. Um, but he wrote it about my relationship with my wife and the things that he's experienced over those 10 years that he's known us. And um, which I'm fascinated by that, that he's able to actually learn something from our relationship and find it in, a, you know, in himself to write a song about it, it was for me to sing. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a gift. And, um, and I've only ever sung for myself. I've never written for anything, you know, for anybody else that, you know, even when I've written songs for, you know, other, I've written songs for some pop stars and it's still pulling from my experience. I'm not pulling from there. So I was fascinated when Don sent me that song and I was like, Oh my God, there's so many things in this that are about me and Natalie, you know, it's, it's interesting, but um, yeah, there, there, you know, look, to answer your question, there are songs that I write that I leave alone. There are songs I write that I, 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 telling the story about you know well i think a great example of that is uh alive by pearl jam you listen to those lyrics and it make you want to kill yourself but yet yeah. when they play it it's ten thousand people going crazy and i've heard eddie vetter just say look once it's out there it's theirs and other people view it as a success story that i rose above you know all of that you can rise above all that so i've just always thought that was fascinating how you know like you said nobody knew that was about andy wood for such a long time and then you find, and now you go back and listen to the lyrics and based on what I know about him, which is very little just from reading books and, and listening to that album makes sense. Well, you know, it's, it's the story with Andy. It's, it's the heroin. It's the heroin talking to Andy. I didn't mean to treat you bad. You chose me. I'm, I'm a drug that is destructive. I do, I do what I do. And you chose me. I didn't mean to treat you bad, but I did it because that's what I do. I'm a drug and you chose me and you could not get away from me. And, and, you know, that's what heroin does. It, it gets its claws in you. You know, it killed Lane Staley. It, it, it killed um, uh, Mike Starr. You know, it's, it's, it's killed so many brilliant musicians. And if, if you can allow yourself to write from that perspective as an artist or as a musician, um, you know, people won't know what it's about. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many, you know, people have written me, you know, that that song saved their life and, you know, they, they left a, an abusive relationship. They left a, a, a drug relationship, you know, um, it's, it's been fascinating for me to, to read the stories and, and humbling at the same time to, to know that I've written something that's been so important to so many people, not only just me. So here's, what's really funny on this. You'll get a kick out of this. No shit. My, my next question on here, it was saying, I saw you true story, 2015, you were literally maybe a mile from where I live. You played an old church in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. With Zach. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Zach and his little the acoustic thing that he does. Yeah. Um, Myers Mac and whatever it's called. Yeah. Four names. I always get and if I, I always get them mixed up. So anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, really good. Seen them several times around here. But you did that show, and first of all, your storytelling was great. I mean, I oh, went there. Just, I went there just to see Kevin Martin play some music I, and I've seen plenty of guys play acoustic shows and they may throw in a story or two, but yours are really good. And the thing that I put on here was as I look at my question, I, I'm talking about the, the fascinating stories you had. I said, several of them come to mind. The bond you talked about with Lane Staley, you know, I remember him, I remember you talking about him 
you were a young kid, if I remember correctly. I remember yeah. you talking about writing you in an altered state. I mean, these are things yeah. that pop in my mind. And then the big one is I had that, oh, moment when you said that Far Behind was about Andy Wood. I love, I, I love Mother Love Bone. Um, they were absolutely one of my favorite bands of that came out of Seattle. Um, mm. I think they could have been big. I think they could have been really big. Uh, I've obviously I wasn't aware because probably nobody was outside of Seattle of malfunction, but I've, yeah. I really dig the malfunction <laughs> stuff, all that great shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love everything that he did. And so that was just, that was really what I was going to ask you about is if, if you could just tell about the influence that, Andy, that Andy would had on you. And then two building off of that, that shoe store, you, I remember you talking about Lane Staley. And so when you worked there, you did have a who's who of Seattle, the, the big players that came in. Did yeah, so those, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, did any of those guys, did they, did they, you feel they helped play a role in Candlebox? Did they help you out? Did they, did they mold you musically? Well, no, none, none of them really helped. Um, and, and certainly didn't mold me because I had the direction I was going in, you know, regardless, but uh, the inspiration was, you know, brilliant. It was run by Susan Silver. The store was called John Flubach. Um, Susan was managing Alice in Chains. She managed Soundgarden, several other Seattle bands. Um, I, you know, I want to say Screaming Trees, um, but she was one of the managers. And there was Kelly Curtis, who had um, Mother Love Bone. And, uh, and I think Kelly also had like um, Seven Year Bitch and maybe the Gits and um, kind of that darker side. Grunt Truck was... Susan's thing. Susan was really into rock and roll. And, um, and she, by the way, still manages uh, Soundgarden uh, and still manages Alice in Chains um, and is, and still a very, very dear friend of mine. So I started working at the shoe store when I was 17 years old. And these guys would come in because she was managing the band. Her office was in behind the store in an apartment building called in the end of the market, which was an apartment building as well as a, as a, kind of a bed and breakfast sort of place. So she had this office that was in one of the bedrooms and then she would come across, you walk around the stairwell and then you come in the back entrance of flu box. So the guys would come in for their flyers. Um, and back in the day in Seattle, you could still hang your flyers up on a telephone pole or whatever and hand them out at the market or wherever the clubs were happening and stuff. And I believe they still allow that in the city. I'm not sure. I, I haven't lived in Seattle since 1998, but I believe they still allow you to um, plaster the telephone poles with your shows because it's kind of the history of the city. And these guys would come in for the flyers. And so I was Lane. That was Chris. That was, uh, well, Andy came in just because he, he just loved the fucking shoes and he was just a weird dude and, and super creative, but all these guys would come in for stuff and it, or if mother love bone was going to be on, uh, you know, one of the bills, they would come in with the flyers over his malfunction. And Susan happened to be producing it with, you know, Greg, who was running this other shoe store called Luna. And there are, there's probably video footage out there on YouTube of mother malfunction at this shoe store called Luna on Broadway, which Greg was the other manager at flu And then he left to start Luna. So the, the city was kind of, it was very, very small and incestual, obviously, but all these guys came in and that's how I met them all. And, and, you know, Lane was one of the few musicians that actually I became very, very good friends with. Um, most of those rock stars weren't about to go, you know, on record supporting Candlebox. You know, we came around four years after, their success after the city had kind of built something so they weren't really gonna be like oh you should pay attention to Candlebox. you should but we were friends outside of that and, and i never mixed the business with pleasure and said hey 
you know, help us out, give us a little love or anything like that. Uh, but one of my favorite stories with Lane was after he had done the mad season record and he was, you know, one of his many attempts at sobriety and going over to his apartment and Mike McCree was there and, and, um, and, you know, we were talking about the music and he had just done the etchings, which was the album cover for mad season. And he said, Oh, Hey man, you should, you should take a couple of those. And, and, you know, etchings, I don't know if you guys know, but they're, they're you know, scrape, you scrape off the black and it becomes the white. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you, most of the time you have white background, you paint black over it. The etchings are where you scrape away. So these were hand done by him and they were signed. And he's like, you should take a few for yourself. And McCready's like, Dude, what are you doing? Like I had to pay for those. And this is the first and only time this has ever been said uh, about me. Lane goes, yeah, but you're not a singer. And I was given these by one of my friends um, because I was a singer and it was a respect thing. There was no, MTV, you know, talking about Kevin from Candlebox, there was no love that way, but it was the only moment. And, and, and honestly, I think out of all those, you know, Seattle musicians that I was ever given that kind of respect. And I'll never forget that. Well, you know, it, well, do you think some of that came from, you know, I, I, I'm, what's the name of the book? Grunge Rock is Dead. I don't know if you ever read that book, but yeah. they, it, when I read the book, I got the, my impression was Lane, the Allison Chains was kind of shit on. And they so, were. So do you think so maybe, you know, that, you know, the, you, uh, maybe, but I mean, you know, Allison Chains gave Mookie Blaylock their first tour. Mookie Blaylock is Pearl Jam. Yeah, exactly. Pearl Jam never reciprocated, never took Allison Chains on the road. Hmm. Well, you're the first person I've ever spoken to that knew Lane Staley as as a friend so i've i want to ask you this question because dirt is one of the most powerful important records of my life um yeah. i I've, I've talked about i have a hard time listening to it now because it played out basically like you know yeah. it was supposed His to life yeah. but lane's stage persona was always very very passionate you know obviously he couldn't give out emotion unlike anybody but i've always heard that off the stage he was a very funny person to be around is, is that true great sense of humor lovely 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 human being i mean um funny and goofball and like did he you know listen if you got him on his you know moments where he was high as a kite you know you didn't know what you were going to get but when you found him uh where he was comfortable there was nobody kinder, you know, nobody sweeter and nobody funnier. He was uh, a gentle, gentle, beautiful human being that um, I think the music is, is what gave him that release that he needed. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to, to lose him to that battle, to that demon. Cause we all thought, after that last round when, you know, he got sober right before he died, that, that this was going to be it. You know, he was, he was done with it. And sadly it was Mike Starr who was the end all be all. And, um, and of course that tortured Mike until his death. Uh, we all watched him on that celebrity, yeah. celebrity, whatever it was. Um, celebrity rehab. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, he just, and, and Mike's another one, you know, it, 
the most fucking beautiful, lovely, funny fucking guy. Um, but heroin's a motherfucker, man. And I'm so lucky that I never got it. I, I never got involved in that world. It's uh, it was it was rampant in Seattle. Um, there were interviews that I would walk out of early in the '90s uh, when they would start talking about it, just because I'm like, I, you don't need to talk about that with us. We all know what's going on there, you know. Um, but Mike was, you know, I dad destroyed him, uh, knowing that he was responsible for Lane's death, and um, you know, when you do. I, I can only imagine when you do something like that or, or you're responsible for something like that, that you just don't come back from it. Well, I thought when Lane's mom came to him on that show and talked to him, that's one of the most powerful real pieces of television you will ever see. And it, I just thought it was so big of her. She's like, this isn't your fault. You didn't do this. Well, and and you could just, you could just see the pain on his face start to try to leave his body. I watched yeah. that show, but I don't recall what he, was responsible for. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember. He that. he he was the one who came over and got Lane high after he was sober, and then Lane uh, went Lane OD'd, and Mike left. He didn't call nine one one. Oh, oh wow! So he came over with the heroin. See mm. Lane. Oh, wow. well, they shot that, up. Lane OD'd. Mike left. Didn't call nine one one. Well, on a yes. happier on a happier topic. <laughs> um, I, I would yeah. I, I've been trying to listen to podcasts you've been on and stuff and, and, and get bits and pieces of information that maybe you don't really expound on, but you were on my friend, uh, Jason Johannes is uh, all things blues and Southern rock yeah. podcast. And good dude, um, Jason. Yeah. He's a good guy. Anyway, you mentioned something on there that, that I thought was, was I have, I have a question later on when I ask you about that podcast as well, but you talked about like your first concert was black flag uh, Dead Kennedys and Butthole Surfers, and you talked about how the cra- the Clash and Roxy Music were your favorite, you know, your favorite bands. Where did the transition come from being a, a punk guy to writing stuff that's, you know, a little more traditional rock music? Well, you know, I grew up on gospel, um, and you know, jazz. My father was a, a jazz musician. My mother loved gospel music. My brother Dennis was into prog rock. I think I mentioned that on, on, uh, on his show, my sister loved, uh, punk rock and new wave. And I just kind of felt maybe it was being the youngest in, in the, you know, the family of four where you can get away with anything and you can push the boundary as far as you want to push it. That punk rock kind of felt more like home to me. And, um, and, and I did have an older brother who, you know, my brother Dennis, who turned me on to Black Sabbath and Rush and that sort of thing, was kind of a dick. And um, he broke my, uh, one of my, my records when I was young. And that's when I was like, now, now you've stepped over the line. And so I guess that's where punk rock kind of found its thing in me. Um, I don't like being told what to do. I don't like following um the norm i've always kind of fought and pushed back to um conformity um i feel that art should piss people off i've always felt that and i don't know how that kind of kiss was my first record but if you think about it that's pushing back on conformity that is a band who was like we're going to do things different our fucking way and you're not going to tell us that we can't and 
so there's a punk rock uh, ethos in Kiss, if you will. Um, so I think that's kind of where that side of me comes from. Now, if you read my lyrics and you listen to my songs, they're not happy go lucky, you know, Hey, I'm a player kind of, you know, <laughs> and all is good. Um, there are songs like you, there are songs like turn your heart around, which you, you broke my heart and I'm trying to fix this. There are songs like the bridge, which is about suicide, you know, far behind about Andy Wood, uh, happy pills, you know, it's all right that our lives aren't okay. It's okay to, to battle, um, happy pills, which is about, you know, drug addiction and Ritalin and shit that was given to kids and in, in that in my day and age when I was growing up. So I've never really been um, uh, a, a pop rock star, um, you know, that kind of sort of, uh, I guess, you know, Brian, you know, Brian Adams or Bon Jovi kind of guy up until I got a little bit older and, and I can appreciate that music. Um, you know, I, I, I love boss gags. I love um, Brian Eno um, I Roxy music just because, you know, there's nothing sexier than that. And, and I think, you know, Led Zeppelin is another example of, of really amazing rock and roll, but blues based rock and roll with a punk rock side, you know, dazed and confused is, is, um, as dark as it gets with Led Zeppelin and then communication break breakdown is as punk rock as you can get. So, I mean, is there really one pattern that, a rock star should be I or, or singer songwriter. I, I don't really know. Um, I do what I do. Um, and I like going against the grain. So maybe that's how I became what I became um, is pushing and, 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 and fighting, but rock music was the platform that allowed me to have a career. I, I, I can't, that's the only answer I can give you. I don't really know. Okay. I have a, uh, I have a very random question I, I, I talk about having different questions uh, it's probably one you I would think you probably unlikely you've been asked this one so David and I went to college at Ole Miss a place in Oxford Mississippi great school 1998 so played there. yes every <laughs> single every single year coming return to fall they gave they provided a school would give us a welcome back concert in the grove candlebox played I was there so I remember yeah, I remember <laughs> there was a girl that came on stage. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. Yes, I do. And I don't remember if she got completely topless, pulled the top up. I can't even remember. It's been so long. The rumor was after that, you guys went and bailed her out. We did. She got arrested and you bailed her out. Yeah, that was did. my question. I was wondering if there's any truth to that. Because I always thought that was the coolest damn story. Yeah, we did. We uh, Well, my tour manager at the time was Mark... Uh, 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 well, God, I don't even know because probably Mark Johnson. So he, Mark was kind of this old school punk rock tour manager who had worked for the Chili Peppers for years, uh, Dead Kennedys, the Germs, kind of a West Coast punk rock tour manager. And, um, and it was interesting. I remember the first day that we met him when we went on tour back in uh, 1993 and we started talking about bands. And he was a huge Frank Zappa fan. I was like, oh, my, we're going to get along great. Um, <laughs> And, I, and, and then as the years progressed, we became best, best friends. And, and at that show, when that happened, because um, you remember that there was a major delay at the beginning. Um, there was a lot of shit going on. There were so many people, the cops didn't know what to do. 
uh, they wanted to shut down the show. Maybe you guys didn't know that, but they were backstage trying to shut I it down. There were so many people there. Yeah. And it was, I don't think it was because of us being there. I think it was just because people back in school and it was going to be fucking mayhem anyways. And, um, and that happened. And Mark's like, we need to get her out of jail or it's going to be a real problem for her. You know, she's going to spend a couple of days in there. And so we did, we bailed her out and uh, we even paid her legal fees when she, um, she had to go back to court. Oh, so is that the first time you've ever been asked that story? Yeah, it is actually and <laughs> the first time I've met somebody who's been at that show because, you know, outside of us, I don't think a lot of people that were at that show really remember that show, to be honest with you. So I'm kind of surprised you do. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, that was one of my, you know, one of my favorite moments of, of my career was, you know, Old Miss is historically one of those schools, man. If you get to go there and, you know, even hang out at, you know, at the school, it's, it's a gift, but to play that you know, huge outdoor park, man, it's, it's spectacular. It's, it's, uh, I think there were like 15,000 people that show. Oh yeah. I, I remember it was packed. It was really, yeah. really packed. And it's so cool that you have such a, a fond memory of coming to, you know, co- coming to Oxford and playing that show. You know, I love uh, Mississippi, man. I, I love Mississippi. I love, I love the South. You can hear my voice. I, I was born in Chicago, but I was raised in San Antonio, Texas. So the, the South to me, um, is a special kind of stupid and a special kind of spectacular. And, and I love it. I I've, I've read a lot about it. Uh, I've experienced a lot of it. Um, I have a lot of friends that come from the South that I'm very, very close to Mississippi, uh, Alabama, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, Georgia that I'm, I'm still very, very close to. So uh, when I was given the opportunity to play Ole Miss, um, if, if I had gone to college, that would have been where I wanted to go. It's, it's, you know, it's just one of those schools that I remember my manager saying, y- y'all want to play Ole Miss? It's like, yeah, we're fucking playing Ole Miss. The eye candy is yeah. pretty good too. <laughs> it's not an, it's not an ugly college. Man. An ugly college. <laughs> well, I, I have a kind of a specific song question I wanted to ask you about because um, we all have songs that we connect with on a visceral level. And sometimes you can explain it. Sometimes you can't explain it. And one of my favorite songs of all time is It's All Right. And I just think it's such a beautiful song. And I have two kind of random questions about you. Was that written about anybody in particular? And the second question is, I've always found it fascinating. You have this beautiful melody, and then you have just out of the blue left field breakdown. Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And it just, and, but then you just go right back into it. How did that part come about? Because that is one of the more unique transitions you're ever going to hear in music. Thank you, man. It's very kind of you. And I, I think you may be one of the few people who actually fucking got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, that song was written about my ex-wife, Renee. Um, she was um, a, a San Francisco girl, um, a twin sister, um, the youngest of 10. And uh, we were dating at the time um, when, when I wrote the song and then we got married about a year after that and divorced two years after that it was, it should never happen. But um, she was a, 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 a particularly challenging um, sp- specimen, if you will. Um, I, she just had so many conflicts going on and, there was so many challenging things about her that I felt like the only way to address 
what I felt for her was in that song. And, um, and there's a darkness to it. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I moved her from Los Angeles to Seattle. That's where the, you know, the, uh, the line is, you know, in the rain and the color of your eyes and all that sort of thing. Um, she kind of collapsed when I took her away from her natural environment. And it was, um, it was challenging to, to be in a relationship with this person. And that's what that song uh, is about. And that's why that change, that right turn Led Zeppelin um, bridge section, if you will, um, it, it goes so dark. It's because that was Renee. She could go from the brightest, you know, excuse me, star in the room to the darkest of moons. And um, she was a challenge, man. She was um, a spectacular woman. But um, I write songs that affect me and, 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 and the, the stories of my life and things I've experienced. And, and that's what It's All Right was about. I never wanted to release it as a single. I didn't think that it held um, the strength musically uh, that it did in its own personality, if, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, the personality of, of that story wasn't reproduced musically the way I felt it should be. And um, Pete and I still, my guitar player and I still fight over that song quite a bit. Um, even conversations we have now uh, about it uh, are, <laughs> he never saw that side of Renee. So he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't understand it, but um, yeah, it was a, and it's one of my favorite songs. I love playing it acoustically it's that's how it was written it was written on acoustic guitar and uh, i love playing it that way but um i think the recording is great i think the recording version of that song is really really be beautiful and brilliant and um but i just don't think that it captures the real uh complexity of of who renee was which well, so, it's just it's to me it's a very moving song and as in particular, when you come out of that breakdown and you do the final, it's all right. You elevate mm -hmm. your voice, you know, more than you normally would. And you go into the, uh, the course. I, it's, it's, if I had to write a list of my 10 favorite songs, it's on there. Um, oh, thank you, it's just, man. It's, thank just you. it's just always just, just really, really from the first time I heard it, I probably listened to it once a week, uh, you know, wow. pull, it, pull it up. And anyway, I've always wanted, if I got to interview you, ask you about that. Cause it's, it's a really <laughs> special piece of music to me. Thank you. Well, you know, it's actually, it's, it's the first record that Dave Cruzan joined us um, on drums and he was so instrumental in making that song kind of work uh, because when he comes in, in that first chorus, he sets the tone for the song. Um, the fact that it's so naked uh, for, I think it's almost like a minute and 45 seconds where it's just me and Pete uh, before those drums kind of start doing their Tom thing, you know, Dave was able to elevate that song kind of to support what it was we were trying to, you know, get across. And of course, Dave cruising from Pearl jam 10 history. Um, uh, and, and Dave's actually played on more Candlebox records than Scott Mercado has our original drummer, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a special song that record special anyways, man. It's, you know, we were, we were fighting and, and uh, as a band, we were struggling to, to kind of, is, is this going to 
last you know the album i mean we were going through so much shit when we made happy pills it was surprising that record was even made and and finished um to be honest with you but um i think there's some spectacular moments on that record and and um certainly it's all right's one of them and and look what you've done and happy pills and sometimes of course in stones throw away which is my favorite record on that song um is uh is i think happy pills is the essence of the true candle box that's when we found our musicianship as artists and um and there's songs on there I could, I would burn at the fucking stake, you know, but there are songs on there that I would die for. And um, that's a great question, man. Thank you for that. I, uh, you're the first person to actually ask me about that <laughs> and in all these years. And, and I do, I do love that song. It's, it's, it's great. It's just amazing. You said you all, you guys were fighting as far as that record got done. How, how long was Candlebox before you, you split up after that? Cause that was the, I mean, what, what does, is there anything in particular that led to that? Yeah. Well, we broke up in 99, uh, actually 2000. So we, uh, the label was going through all sorts of fucking changes. Um, the drug and alcohol abuse in the band was beyond control. Um, Scott had quit. Barty wasn't happy. Dave was sober and just joined the band. Pete was out of control, uh, with drugs and alcohol. And I was trying to keep the ship afloat. Um, and I think we lasted through 99 and then Dave left and Barty left and we did like a month and a half worth of touring in 2000. And that was it. I mean, the band broke up. Pete and I split in San Francisco. Um, you know, it was, yeah, it was hard, man. That, that, that was a hard break. And, Tried to get out of the record deal. I lock, I was locked into uh, the record deal with Maverick until um, 2002 as a key player. And that's when they let me go. And then I didn't receive record royalties until 2013. So um, it it's a, a bitter period and a hard period to talk about because there was so much. It was so childish, man. It was so ego driven and alcohol and drugs. Um you know, the worst way to, um, you know, try to fix a band and try to break up a band at the same time. Um, yeah, just, just tough memories, you know, a, t- a tough part of the history of the band. Did, did you take some time off before go, getting, doing the high Watts or did that no. come pretty soon after, right after? I started the high Watts. I literally started the high Watts in, uh, in 2000 when we were on tour, uh, finishing up those last like 16 dates. Um, I had started writing with, um, a couple of friends, uh, Robbie, who's playing guitar in the band, uh, uh, Robbie Allen, who'd come from a band called Thermidor and Rob rule and Eric Erlinson from hole. Uh, we had started writing songs for a solo record. I had tried to make a solo record in 96 and I was told by the band that if I made a solo record that, um, we were going to break up. So the animosity goes way, way back. Um, it's, it's, it's so strange that um, musicians feel as though they can control or set standards for things. You know, um, one of the things I love about Zach um, and, and Brett from Shinedown is, is 
they know what they're capable of and they allow one another to do what they're capable of doing. Same with Led Zeppelin and, you know, every other band in the world, Seattle bands are different. Uh, it's, it's, it's that three musketeers mentality, but it's not the three musketeers backbone. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all in this together, but if you try to fucking leave, fuck you. And that's what happened to me. And I was like, I'm just trying to make a solo record. Like my music's different than what we're doing. And, um, and so I had started writing that in, uh, in 99 and 2000. And so when 2002 came around and I did the possibility of being with, uh, with my buddies, um, in the band, um, uh, I had had the songs ready well before the record was made. Damn good record too. Thank you. Thank I you. love that one. Did you, ever did you consider keeping that band together before you know when you got the offered uh, or however out y'all decided to put candle i know it's not all the original members but when Candlebox reunited was there consideration of just not doing that and staying with the high watts no i mean it was financial you know um when Candlebox got back together barty scott pete and myself the original band in 2006 for that you know reunion tour and 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 starting of uh writing for for the uh into the sun record um you know the thought was that that we were past whatever emotional challenges we had pete was now sober um barty was practicing law and scott was you know doing what scott was doing had been also been playing in brandy carlisle for a while as well so um we were ready to kind of put this thing back together the high Watts for me was a labor of love, um, financially exhausting, um, and and uh, musically enlightening. Um, you know, I love those guys so much. Half the band plays in my band now, anyways. Mm. <laughs> Adam and Sean still play with me, and uh, and I love them. And uh, you know, I. Adam's my brother from another mother. And so is Sean Memphis, Tennessee. You know, I mean, I love that kid. I met him when I was, when he was 18 years old and he's been playing with me since he was 19. So, um, I, I keep, I keep them, you know, I keep, I keep my friends close. I do not keep my enemies closer. Um, I do not believe in that. Um, I play with the guys I love playing with and, you know, Pete and Barty and Scott are all doing brilliant things on their own. They're very, very happy. Their fathers, their husbands, their you know business managers and lawyers and all that sort of thing. Um, Candlebox was a happy accident in 1991. That um, lasted nine years um, as Candlebox, thirty years as a a as its whole, not a sum of its parts. And I think that's kind of what people know about us is they know the music. They don't know the individuals. And um, I don't think that matters to them. Well, it's, it's means so much when you have a name, like um, my favorite, I, I host a black crows podcast. They're my favorite band of all time. And when they broke up in 13 or 14, depending on who you talk to rich Robinson took three fifths of the band out as the magpie salute. Yeah. But that, you know, they were playing to 200 people, you know, they're going to play to seven or 8,000 this summer. And sometimes I feel like artists get caught in this kind of weird limbo about, you know, who has the name and who gets to go on with it because 
obviously if you went out as Kevin Martin in the high watch, you're not going to draw as much as many people as, as Candlebox. But like you said, it's a lot of members of the same band. I've just always thought that was kind of interesting. It's, it's a silly, it's a silly thing that we do. And, um, you know, but yes, if you're, if you're an Apple product, uh, people are going to buy it. If you're a, a Microsoft product, I'm not really sure, you know, um, God, I want that Black Crows tour so bad. <laughs> it's not going to happen, but no. you know, I—I I mean, I—I I love those guys, and uh, you know, I, I saw them early on. I saw them when Jimmy Page played with them. I—I um, I, I thought that we were going to do that tour with them last summer. I thought like it was going to be Candlebox and Black Crows, and, and we were supposed to actually tour with them in '96 for um, about four weeks. And uh, or actually, I'm sorry, '98, and I had a hemorrhage on a vocal cord, and, and we had to back out of the tour. So I've been trying to get that back since then. I, I do love the Black Crows. But yes, if you're Rich Robinson uh, going out or you're Chris Robinson going out, nobody gives a shit. If you're the Black Crows, everybody's going. If you're Candlebox, yes. If you're Kevin Martin, no. If you're Peter Collette, no. If you're Barty Martin, no. If you're Scott Mercado, no. Um, that name that established you is going to be the, the foundation of your career. And, and embrace it and respect it. Treat it with kindness. And, uh, and never, ever take it for granted because it is the most important gift that's been given to you. All right. Let me make sure I got this right. There was a chance you guys were going to be on that tour that was supposed to be last summer. There, there was fingers oh. crossed a chance. Yes. I mean, there, our agent had pitched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rumor was they weren't willing to pay what we were owed. And, and because, uh, you know, I play a radio festival, you know, my guarantees are my guarantees. Mm-hmm. You want me to open for you, you're going to pay me what my guarantees are worth. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, those are rumors. Nobody knows. Nobody really knows because it never happened. You are know, you, COVID are you, came along. And do you, do you, I mean, you said you knew Mark. Do you know the rest of the band? I know. I know, uh, Chris. I do not know Rich. I don't know anybody else in the band. Mark Ford's a special guitar player. <laughs> He's a fucking brilliant guitar player. <laughs> Uh, fucking brilliant guitar player when I, we had him on my crows podcast he broke some news he apparently was asked to join join guns and roses on two occasions when izzy left uh, I, I heard the rumor I, I heard the rumor as well and then he confirmed he got asked to join during chinese democracy as well uh, I, thank god I, he didn't i don't think he would have <laughs> i don't th- i mean i don't think he and slash could share a stage they're both lead guys you know <laughs> and, and and both both brilliant yeah. both brilliant players yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool that you're a, a big Crows fan. Maybe we can have you on our Crows podcast at some point. Uh, <laughs> well, my first, my first band that became Candlebox was called Uncle Duke, and we, I mean, the Black Crows, not their cover songs, but what they were doing was a huge, huge influence on some of the music we were writing. That's why you have Rain on the debut album, that kind of blues-based rock and roll, and most Candlebox songs are blue-based, blues-based mm-hmm. anyway. So. But um, they they were so fresh at the moment, um, th- and what they were creating was so kind of visceral and and, and volatile at the same time. Uh, I think it was hard to kind of ignore how brilliant they were. Well, as we as we fast forward, just a couple more questions. Just um, so after after the high watts, it was the Into the Sun record, which. Yeah, really good record. Like David was talking about, it's all right. The song that uh, I just really gets to me on that one is "Miss You." Um, I mean, that one just—I don't know. There's something about it. It's—it's so—it's so emotional. And 
I mean, I'm, I'm gathering based on what I've heard. This is about your father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible song though. And, and I, and I, and I, and I love that album too. You know, that, that's a. Into the sun was a, into the sun was a battle, man. Um, we actually, you know, I think we'd experienced uh, over the six years that we weren't playing together. Uh, the realization of our individual talents as, as musicians and, and songwriters. Um, Barty, when he joined the band, brought you and far behind. So he came to a rehearsal and he brought those two songs. As we grew as a band, Pete and I became the songwriting force of Candlebox. Uh, that's not to say that Barty didn't continue to bring great songs. He didn't bring you and far behind ever again. He brought really amazing songs. Pete and I took what we had learned from writing with Barty and turned them into It's All Right, Sometimes, Stone Throw Away, uh, Butterfly, some simple me- lessons, understanding, uh, you know, all those kind of first three album songs. So when Into the Sun came around, Barty had kind of shifted in his songwriting process. And we spent about three weeks trying to write songs. And it was like, it was, it, you know, the saying, you know, square peg and a round hole. I mean, you can imagine trying to shove a 2,500 square foot hole into or home into a uh, 300 square foot hole. It was not possible. I mean, we just, it was just battle after battle. And uh, I took, I took Pete home one night after maybe like the second week of rehearsals. And I said, listen, man, uh, this isn't going to happen. You know, if we're going to write this record, you and I are going to have to write the record. And, and um, we're going to have to bring it to the band. There's, there's no way we can write the way we used to. Those, that, you know, that early 19 fucking 91 process of being excited and, you know, hungry and not knowing one another, making that debut album, it doesn't exist anymore. You've lived a lot uh, of life. Shit ton of life. All of us. Pete's sober at this point. So, you know, he's trying to write real, really writing, you know, from, a, a, you know, his fingers, you know, addressing his brain and everything kind of working together. Whereas before it'd be like, you know, a couple lines of cocaine and, you know, three or four shots and you, you came up the part that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, so we had to have a real conversation making that uh, into the sun record and, um, it didn't, Barty didn't survive it. Um, he did not survive that. He went, uh, left the band and went back to be an attorney. Um, and Scott fought his way through the record as a drummer. Um, so it was a real challenge, man. I think we had all, uh, experienced some real growth and some real heartbreak at the same time as musicians in, in respecting one another's talents. But at the same time, knowing what we had to accomplish and, and making a record that people would want to pay attention to. I always love Pete's playing too. Really? I always talking. thought he was a great, great guitarist. I mean, I don't think that gets said very often, which it should. I agree with you. One of the, one of the hands down, one of the greatest guitar players to ever pick up a guitar. Yeah, he's really good. I, I love like, uh, we got to break into like voodoo child. 
um, yep. you know, stuff like that. That's really cool. Well, um, Kevin, um, as we wrap this up, first of all, thank you for coming on. Um, My pleasure. I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I've, <clears throat> I've been lucky to interview Susan Tedeschi, Dave Elson, Mark, uh, Mark Ford, kind of a lot of, you know, we've interviewed Michael Graves from the Misfits, a lot of people. This is by far the best interview I've ever, ever been a part of. Oh, I've, I've actually man. really, really enjoyed this too, man. You're just thank a you. real, real dude. And I, and I appreciate thank you. that, man. Thank you. I'm uh, you know, I mean, honesty is, is, uh, is, you know, I, I wish that, the, that more people were honest kind of about themselves. And, you know, when I do an interview like this, like I'd mentioned earlier, you know, podcast, this is a, this is a real conversation and, um, and I appreciate y'all taking the time, man, and, and, and listening to me and, and, you know, asking great questions and, you know, there, there's a story to be told for every single musician. Some of them don't want to tell it. I love talking about Candlebox. This band has been in my blood for 30 years and I'm 52 years old come April 9th. So more than half my life, this band has been, um, not only my inspiration, but my reality. And, um, and, you know, I, I, I try every single time to, to mention how important Barty and Scott and Pete are to Candlebox. The, the founding members of this band, um, we, we, we had some magic moments, man, that um, have, have given, given me a career for 30 years, but have paid our rent for that long. And, uh, and I love these motherfuckers. I miss them. And uh, at some point, you know, we'll get back together and do a 30th anniversary tour of, of the debut album and, and, uh, and go through those motions. But um, thank you for asking great questions and, and allowing me to spew all sorts of venom. Absolutely. So that the 30th, is that really going to happen? Or is that yeah, just- yeah. We're talking, we're setting that, we're setting that up now. That'll be, uh, that'll be 2023. We'll go out as the original band and, and play that debut album and some of the b-sides that haven't ever even been heard from that record special edition with the b-sides record coming out yeah yeah awesome hey i do since you are being really honest and on you don't mind any questions and this may be my cookie cutter question that you've been asked a thousand times but i am curious i gotta ask it the, the whole because i remember when this story came out i remember you talking about it at the acoustic show in memphis when courtney love brought up Candlebox, and she just I mean, started talking about, yeah, I mean, I don't, I I guess I never really understood because you got, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the attack was essentially that you moved there to ride off of the fame, the coattails of all the musicians in Seattle, but you were, your your family moved there. If I'm, if I'm correct. So, I mean, do you, do you have any, I mean, is there any reason why you think she targeted you? I mean, I know, I know she's got, seems to be a, a loose cannon and a bit of, no, no offense to anybody may like her. She seems like a nut job, but you know. Well, back well back then, she you know um, it was still you know doing a lot of drugs and and uh, you know we're talking 1996 when she kind of attacked the band. Uh, I don't think she, I don't think she really knew what she was talking about until we did that Rocket magazine album uh, magazine cover where we dressed up like her and, and the caption was Candlebox the boys with the most cake and that's what really set her off um, and uh, and you know I, I actually had a conversation with her two years after that a friend of mine who was good, good friends with her got me on a cell phone with her and and I said listen I don't I don't I have no idea why you hate us the, Pete and Barty and Scott were born in Seattle 
Um, I moved there in 1984 from San Antonio, Texas, well before Kurt had started Nirvana. Um, I don't know what this is about, but um, you're wasting your time because your fans don't care about us and our fans don't care about you. And, uh, and years, a couple years ago, um, when Dave Cruz was getting some surgery on his arm, uh, our drummer, Robin Diaz filled in for uh, a whole tour that he did that she did in Australia. And I told him, I said, do not tell her you play with Candlebox or she will fucking send you home in a heartbeat. Um, because apparently it's still a, uh, a bit of pill for her. So, you know, 20 some odd years later, she still got a problem with this. But yeah, I mean, it was really just a joke on her song, The Girl with the Most Cake, which was, I think, doll parts. So, uh, well, just uh, the other thing to wrap it up, you talked about shows. When, when did you say the date when you're starting the shows again? Uh, I think the first show is August 6th. And you said you're doing Nashville? No, Nashville won't be until, I believe, September. Okay. okay. Where's your, that's going to be? I don't. I, I, it might be the Ryman. I'm not really sure. Okay. Just curious. Chris, yeah. we, may, we might have to make a drive. Road trip for sure, man. Yeah. Um, I do want to tell everybody the album is Wolves. It's out in September. As Chris and I always tell people, don't stream it. Go buy the vinyl, buy the CD, or pay for the download. We don't, we don't promote stealing music on here. Uh, and so uh, go support uh, our favorite artist. And like I said, it's coming out in September, and it's called Wolves. And if it's all right with you, Kevin, we're going to play out with my weakness. Do it. Thank you, thank you so much, man. This is, this Thanks, is Kevin. Man. It's been an honor.
know that you believe. 